Hello and welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And this is our brand new first episode of our game design podcast. If you've listened to previous episodes, that was all the fever dream for this is the pilot. What are we talking about today, AJ? Today we're talking about terminology, the third part in our three-part series on game terms and what they mean, why they're useful, how to use them. And this is a special episode because I didn't do any show notes for it. These are all terms that you know that I might not. So this is very exciting for me. Third and hopefully final episode on terminology. <laughs> this was meant to be one episode. It's, it's really, it's, uh, it's gotten out of control. But first, let's do follow-up on the first of our terminology episodes. AJ, any follow-up from you? Nope, not for me. So I had a few things, uh, which is that a listener reached out a disgruntled listener, I'd say, and they were not super happy about the way that we structured that episode. Uh, specifically, they found it a little offensive that I was like, I'm just hearing these terms for the first time. I've done no prep for this episode. La 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 la. Uh, they, they, they thought that was less than professional. So I just wanted to address that. The idea was sort of that, you know, you would share a term and I would have a, a raw reaction to it. They thought that that was not the best way to do it, that instead I should have had a, a list of definitions. And honestly, the main reason we did it this way is because before our first episode, we recorded a unaired pilot. Do you remember this, AJ? I do. And I was very prepared for that episode. Uh, we discovered that when I'm very prepared for an episode, oh my goodness, I am boring. I just like live off spontaneity, apparently. You know, you. It's, weirdly enough, this is how I am with live theater as well. You know, live theater and board game podcasts, two genres with incredible overlap. If I am in a play where I know all the lines, I can't be good at it. Whereas improv, where I go up not knowing what's going to happen, I am, I'm relatively good at So this is the main reason we did it. Having said that, I think that we could have structured that episode better where I could have had a listen, you could have had a listen, we could have gone back and forth and like had raw reactions from both of us instead of just one side. So lesson learned. I'll also uh, just jump in and say, I agree with you, listener. When we finished, we, we did have a talk about this, about how we felt it went. I think that there's a ton of great information in there and I do stand behind the definitions, but I do agree that I felt, I wouldn't say necessarily underprepared, but I think it would have been structured more nicely if, say, I had a previously prepared definition and then Peter and I discussed it. I also prefer doing a bit more off-the-cuff stuff, but because I do the show notes, I do have a little bit more in mind than Peter. So I think if I were to redo this, that is the way that I would prefer to have it structured. So I do appreciate that feedback. Thank you for that. All right, now let's, let's cut all of that and go again. Uh, a listener sent in feedback, and they're obviously an idiot who's wrong because we were perfect this is how you should react to feedback by the way please please be taking notes uh they just didn't get what we were doing we're really maybe they're just not smart enough to listen to our podcast i think that's the reasonable conclusion to reach it's gotta be gotta be <laughs> they also specifically said that there are a few terms that we kind of mentioned and they didn't really define very well and they had a quote from don norman who wrote a book about stuff like affordances uh, I think that's the book that you recommend. Yeah. So they, they I, I just wanted to read it. Uh, they said, an affordance is how an object can be used and a signifier is the method of defining that. A door affords opening, a bar handle signifies pushing. I just thought that was a really nice little um, splitting of the two. And then they went on to say that uh, that's why dice are bad at marking values, which is something that I've complained about many times, including on this podcast. Don't use a dice to track stuff. Dice afford marking values. That's an affordance, but they signify rolling. And that's where I really enjoyed like understanding where my own preference comes from, where every time I see a die being used to track values, I'm like, no, I want to roll it. That's because of affordance and signifiers, which is two of the terms that we were discussing in that episode. 
I appreciate that too. It's been a very long time since I've been familiar with that book. So I do appreciate that as well. Thank you. I also, <laughs> I have not told you this, so this is, this is feedback. I also found the list of words you chose really weird. Um, there were just some in there that I was like, is character a common game design word that we need to define? Uh, which is partially why we're doing this third part. These are some words that I wanted to bring up. Uh, having said that, I, I agree with you that that episode, I, I listened to it a few times since then because of the editing process and really happy with that. I think there's some good stuff in there. So hopefully not a complete train wreck. And I'm glad that they kept on listening despite me being like, I'm not going to do any prep. La 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 la. My name's Peter. Any other follow-up on that episode? Let's jump into Board Game Terminology Part 3, Peter Edition. So then the last episode I mentioned Chapel as an example of a specific card in a specific game, in that case Dominion, which has now been used by some people as just a, a general term. Like, oh yeah, that's a Chapel card. There's two more major ones that I want to bring up. They're both from Magic the Gathering, and I want to see if you know what they are. Do you know what a tutor card is? T-U-T-U-O-R. Tutor. A tutor card is something that allows you to search through your deck for a particular card or a particular subset of card. Exactly right. So this is a this is a term that specifically comes from Magic the Gathering. There was a card called Tutor, and it lets you search your deck for a card. And now every time they do further search your deck for cards, they're called Tutor cards. So for example, Demonic Tutor or Angelic Tutor, etc. So they, they still put these cards in and let you search your deck, but they generally name them after the Tutor card. Another one is Mill. Now Mill is actually interesting because it's gone from just being a card description to being a general term in games. If you were to mill your deck, what does that mean? That means to take the top X cards of your deck, where X is how much you're milling, and put those into your discard pile. So for example, mill three would be remove the top three cards of your deck and discard them. This, you may not know, also comes from a specific Magic the Gathering card. That's why it's called milling. Millstone. Yeah, very early card. And so now that's just become a general verb, which if you're not heavily into games or game design, you might have heard not understood what it meant. So that's mill. Uh, this next one's also from Dominion. What is it to trash a card? To trash a card, it means to remove it from the game. It will no longer be in a deck, discard pile, hand, or in play. It is removed entirely from the game. It will not be used for anything else. So trashing, as mentioned, comes from Dominion, and it's a really handy term because often there's, you know, a discard pile and there's stuff that gets back from discard piles. Deck builders especially use a lot of trashing because deck builders are all about cycling your discard pile back into your hand. And so trashing uh, was a term from Dominion that now I've seen used in dozens and dozens of playtests where people are like, oh yeah, it's a trash card. You know, it goes out of the game entirely. Let's jump one more from Magic the Gathering. Who are Jimmy, Timmy, Spike, Melvin, and Vorthos? These are players' psychographics, I think is the right term. And basically it's a way of thinking about your customers. So if someone opens the pack of Magic cards, what type of card are they hoping to get that fits with the thing that they want out of the game? Timmy, I actually, uh, I have this in a, in a future episode where we talk about audiences a little bit more in depth, but I disagree a little bit with uh, Magic the Gathering's definition of what a Timmy is. What they refer to Timmy as is Timmy wants big things. And what I would say is Timmy just wants to feel something. Timmy wants exciting things. <laughs> Timmy's dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> I would describe myself as a Timmy, so yes, that is accurate. <laughs> so in Magic the Gathering, typically the way to that they design cards for a Timmy player would be to have the biggest, baddest dragon, this huge creature that when you play it, it will destroy everything. Crazy effects. Um, but... That's not necessarily competitive. It's just an exciting, fun thing for that person to, to enjoy. The Spike player 
is someone who just wants to win. The primary thing, that, that's what's important here, the primary reason that they play Magic, the primary thing they get out of it, is dominance over another person. They want to win. They don't care necessarily if the card is big and cool and powerful, if it's Dragon, they're like, this card's just more efficient. So I'm going to play the one-mana Dorkling because it's actually more competitively <laughs> viable than the cool Dragon. The Johnny psychographic is for... They also have um, uh, alternate names now. I think uh, Johnny Jenny is is this one. Um, Timmy Tammy Tim, and Spike's Tammy. gender neutral. Yeah. yeah. And so um, Johnny Jenny is someone who is invested in magic because of the mechanics themselves. They just love the way that the little pieces interact. This would be like a, a Euro player, for instance, someone who really enjoys a lot of subsystems interacting with each other. These can obviously be applied to more than just magic. But the idea is when they're designing cards, which of these are they designed the the rare, the most valuable, exciting card for one of these people? Because if they if someone opens up the pack and none of their demographics are excited for it, then what's the what point? What are you doing? So the other angle of Johnny too, and I, I think I'm probably a Johnny out of, out of these side graphics, uh, is that they are the creative. They want to take these systems and use them to build something of their own. Spike will just download the winning deck list and build that deck and go and win because they just care about winning. These are, by the way, awful names. I hate these names so much. They're <laughs> so generic and they're so unhelpful. And it gets even worse when we get into Melvin and Vorthos. Oh, awful. Johnny's the one that I most identify with. And it's about making something your own by manipulating systems, I think is, is a good way of putting it. And so I'm a game designer. And so obviously there's a lot of Johnny in me and I also love systems. <laughs> yeah, to put it another way, I would say Timmy wants to do something exciting. Spike wants to feel powerful. And Johnny Jenny want to express themselves i think yeah i think that might be yeah, a way that's of a really good it. breakdown and so then vorthos is someone who comes to magic for the lore and by the way these obviously there's there's a little something in, in everyone like everyone likes to win but the idea is what, what's your primary archetype so those those three are um are the sort of the main aspects of, of the gameplay but layered on top of those are vorthos which is going to magic for the lore. They like the art. They like the story text. They like the flavor text. They like the names. They like that this is a legendary character. They like the the cool backstory. They're the people who will actually read through the paragraph blurb in the front of a rule book that tells you the background of the game, that sort of thing. And then Melvin is the one that I always forget. <laughs> What's the deal with Melvin? <laughs> the way I think about it is, is Vorthos is about the overall story. And Melvin is about the individual card stories. So hmm. to use Star Wars as an example, maybe Vorthos cares about, oh, wow, the, the Republic was founded in this year and then went until this year. Melvin is like, yeah, but what's R2-D2's favorite color? That's kind of the way that I think about it. It's about the overall versus the individual. Gotcha. Johnny, Timmy, and Spike, or Johnny, Jenny, Timmy, Tammy, and Spike, I hate these names on so many levels, uh, about the mechanical side of it, whereas Melvin and Vorthos... And maybe there's Mel is gender neutral now and both, I don't know. Uh, they are about the theme. So it's kind of like, how do you approach it mechanically? How do you approach it thematically? The other way I think about Melvin and Vorthos is Vorthos cares about the whole set and how they interact mechanically. So Vorthos opens, you know, the sliver set, whatever the first sliver set was, and was like, wow, this sliver combines with this sliver in such a cool way. That's about the integration of different things together. Whereas Melvin likes the way that theme and mechanics combine on a single card. So you know, the, the the card that is a seven strength, seven defense that costs seven and has seven elsewhere. 
Like, it's, it's very neat individually, even if it has nothing else to do with the rest of the set, whereas Vorthos cares about the integration of mechanic and theme of the set as a whole. We'll probably do many more episodes about psychographics because I'm obsessed with psychographics, and we'll probably do a whole new episode on Jimmy, Timmy, Spike, Melvin, and the Vorthos. I always say Jimmy because they are so generic, I can't remember which one's which. <laughs> but that, that, that's, if you ever heard that, hear those terms, that's a good little primer as to what they are and, and where they come from. Specifically, actually, they come from Mark Rosewater's blog, which is probably the best board game design blog on the internet. And also he has a podcast if you're more inclined for that format. It's different content, but it's good. With literally hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Like the blog goes back to the 90s and the podcast not long after that. It's just, yeah, there's too many episodes. I'm, I'm downloaded. It's like, oh, yes, you know, 4,000 hours of listening or something insane. So let's move away from magic and talk about some of the different genres of game design that we didn't touch on last time. Here's one of the most controversial topics in all of board game design. AJ, what is an abstract? I was so afraid that you're just going to ask me to redefine <laughs> Euro. <laughs> oh my goodness. We did such a good job with Euro. I was so nervous getting up to it. And then I listened and I was like, we nailed that. I was very proud of that episode. <laughs> that's that's one of my most proud definitions, I think, of, of the ones that we did. Like you say, this is very controversial. The big thing is some people say abstracts do not have luck. They cannot have luck. If they have luck, then they are no longer an abstract strategy. As previously discussed, I think what we're going to go with for right now are markers. We're going to say not, here's the clean, concise definition of everything that is this thing. We're going to talk about typical things that you will see. You would be very surprised to not see this be a feature in the game. I'll pause you because I accidentally gave you a bit of a loaded question. One of the issues, and this is actually very common in, in a lot of arguments, so if you ever find yourself having an argument that's like this, step back and see if this is a problem. One of the issues is that people use abstract along two completely separate metrics. They use abstract to describe the mechanical genre of the game, and they use abstract to describe the theme of the game. And these, as we've discussed, they can be linked, and it's great when they are linked, but these can be completely different. You can re-theme a game and have it be mechanically identical. You can change the mechanics of a game within the same theme. Let's talk about, first of all, what is an abstract theme? So an abstract theme just means it doesn't have um, much theme to it. It, it means it is the, the, the more abstract you are on that scale from abstract to thematic, the less theme is in it. That's a very uh, obnoxious way of defining it because I'm using the, the term inside of it. But basically, if you have something that has no theme, that's when you have something like Go, where you have a bunch of tokens on a board and you place tokens to manipulate tokens. It's something that's completely cerebral and has no connection to anything outside the literal mechanics themselves. I'm going to say you can go even further than Go, because while Go, you're right, like that's right up the end of the scale. You can probably go like an inch further. Go still uses some vaguely thematic terminology. Like there's, there's various terms in Go, like Capture, for example, has a real life application of some kind. Mastermind, the game from the 80s, literally nothing. Like there is nothing in that game that has any theme whatsoever. Go is, is pretty close to a pure abstract. I would, I would call Mastermind an absolutely pure abstract in terms of theme. And the other thing too is that people often use this pejoratively to dismiss games that have a theme by calling it a pasted on theme. So for example, Splendor, which is a very, very successful game, very lovely little design. It's got a theme. <laughs> there's, you know, there's art and there's theme and there's, yeah, this is a gem. But what you're doing and that theme have, I would say, literally nothing to do with each other. Like you could retheme that game to be about orcs and dragons. You could retheme that game to be about 
pillows and cuddles. You could retheme that game to be about different countries and it would work exactly the same. It's got a theme, but it's still a very, very thematically abstract game. But even when you have a pasted on theme, like you're right, it is used as a pejorative, but it does help. It does make the game more uh, appealing to most people. If you look at um, Santorini, the current gorgeous version that is out and available isn't the original version. Originally, it was just tiles and blocks, and you move the blocks on the tiles. And, and, and so if you go to BGG, you can see the original version, and you can see how completely devoid of theme it is. You can see how completely devoid of art it is. Like a game of checkers. Yeah, exactly. And you can see now with the beautiful art for the characters with their player powers. I don't know if the powers were in it originally, but the core game was was there. And you can see the the beautiful board that they have and everything. And it makes a big difference. If they had put the original Santorini up on Kickstarter, it would have failed and it would have failed badly. As is, it did really, really well and it continues to sell really well. So let's jump into an abstract strategy game, which would be the full title. And this is now, we've moved away from theme. These can have as much or as little theme as you like. This is a mechanical genre of games. And this is equally controversial, at least partially, because people are like, uh, no, abstracts can have luck. Look at Santorini. And you're like, well, no, that's abstract thematically, but it's not trying to be a... Th- it's, it's two separate arguments that people often conflate. So let's separate theme out entirely and talk about what is mechanically an abstract strategy game. And we'll use genre markers for this because that's a helpful way to do it. Yes. So as you say, um, typically devoid of luck. And actually, some characters in Santorini don't have luck. Some do. So some people will argue that it becomes an abstract strategy if you're playing with the right set of characters and is no longer an abstract strategy when you switch characters. Which, again, I think we're just being way too pedantic. I do not think this is a useful (laughs) discussion to be having if we are taking it to the extreme. (laughs) Yeah. For the sake of, of our conversation, we're using genre markers, like you said. Devoid of luck is a very strong genre marker. Having no theme or having, as we have said, a pasted on theme would definitely be a genre marker. Even something like Santorini that is gorgeous and beautiful, again, that that definitely still feels like an abstract strategy to people because it's still fairly pasted on. I'm not trying to be dismissive to the game. It's one of my favorite games. I think it's fantastic. Uh, But that's, that's sort of how we look at it. Typically, there's a grid when you have a board that has hexes or squares or intersections or lines. In some way or another, there is a very, there's probably a better term than grid for it, but there's something that's very simple and shape-based that you are manipulating pieces on. Isometric. Isometric, thank you. That's, That's much better. Another thing I would say, not having player powers, being a symmetric game apart from turn order, is a very strong genre marker. Very few abstract strategies have player powers. And that's almost what Santorini did differently. That was kind of Santorini's selling point. It's an abstract strategy with player powers. And people were like, well, you could combine abstract strategy <laughs> and player power? What? So for me, I don't actually like abstract strategies, but I like Santorini because those player powers introduce a lot of interesting asymmetry and, and decision-making. I'm in the exact same boat there, absolutely. I actually have an abstract strategy game coming out very soon from Pandasaurus Games. It's called That Time You Killed Me. And it is, ah, it's lovely, lovely little design. And it's very heavily inspired by Santorini. It's a campaign game. So you play through four or five chapters of, you know, learning different rule sets and how they apply. And then at the end of it, you get an envelope full of player powers, basically. So it's a pure abstract strategy in the classic sense without player powers. And then you get player powers at the end of it. But the interesting thing about it is that while it is 
firmly in abstract strategy mechanically, like all the way that you can lean into abstract strategy. It is that it is very thematic. It's a game about time travel and all of the mechanics, all of the powers, all of the rules, everything that you'll unlock in the envelopes, they're all deeply thematic. And that theme is tied heavily into the mechanism. So, I, you know, not, not to toot my own horn, as we all know, I'm a modest, modest man. I would say it is probably <laughs> the most thematic abstract strategy game there is. Definitely in contention there. I cannot think of an abstract strategy that is more thematic than, than that one for sure. And I think part of that is sort of by design. You do what you know. And I like this about abstract strategies. I'm going to keep doing that thing a bit. But because you typically don't like abstract strategies, you can take the parts of it that you do like and combine it with other things that you see in other games, right? If you're raised in a Greek family, you're going to make Greek in a very traditional way. If you <laughs> find Greek food later in life, you might mix it with Asian fusion or whatever and be like, yeah, it's not orthodox Greek food, but it's still Greek inspired and, and it does interesting things with it, which was the goal, obviously, hopefully. <laughs> But at the same time, people who do like abstract strategies can still get a lot out of that. And even if they don't want to play with the player powers at all, it's still like a compelling game in its core, just like Santorini is, right? So it's kind of the yeah. chocolate and peanut butter. I would say a very, very strong genre marker for abstract strategies is no hidden information, which, as I'm sure we've discussed, is very different to luck. No symmetrical play, you know, no hide and reveal. One of my favorite definitions of abstract strategy is a little bit, uh, a little bit poetic, and I think maybe that's why I like it. It's a game in which every turn I set up a puzzle for you to solve. If you cannot solve that puzzle, I win the game. And so that, that's why stuff like no luck and no hidden information and no simultaneous play. An abstract strategy game is one where I make a move and if you can't defeat that move, I win. <laughs> My favorite abstract strategy game is probably Shobu, which is a classic, no player powers, nothing, just bits of a bit of wood and some stones and a rope. And he really leaned into the aesthetic of, yes, we are not even giving this a semblance of a theme. It is a pure abstract in every sense. Mine too, actually. Uh, I would say Centurini's first, but of like the, you know, it, Shobu is much more a classic abstract strategy. <laughs> the reason why I like santorini is because it's not like other abstract strategies <laughs> yeah and santorini allows you to take out the player powers and just play it completely symmetrically too if you're super boring <laughs> i'm just kidding do, do what you want my friends <laughs> yeah and part of it is because like i said the the core of an abstract strategy is that puzzle thing whereas once you get a third person in then suddenly it's king making and politics and like hey let's pair up and so on and so forth all right let's move on to deck builder what is a deck builder my friend it might be useful to give a little bit of background before I define the term. Back in the day, Magic the Gathering came out, very popular game, collectible card game. You would buy booster packs, build a deck out of the cards that you had, and play with them. Deck builders came out of that sort of concept of wanting to have that experience, but having it more distilled on the deck building aspect, less on the playing aspect, in a more accessible way. Because Magic the Gathering is many things, it is not accessible. In fairness, they do occasionally release starter packs and like, here's how you get into it, etc. If you're trying to play competitively, absolutely, it's not accessible. But if you and a friend want to play, you can each buy a starter pack and have a good time. Very true. So deck building came out of the desire of making the deck building the whole game and making it more accessible in a single box format. A deck builder with that context in mind is where you will start off with a certain number of cards they are typically not going to be very good cards. And over the course of the game, you're going to acquire new cards into the deck. The one key marker for this is you're going to be cycling through the deck many, many times in most cases. Again, this is, this is a key marker, but it's not going to be in every single deck builder. And so the idea is you're going to get more and more powerful cards. You're going to build up combos and stuff, and your deck will get better as you play. 
There's been a lot of different riffs on this. In many deck builders, you will be removing the cards that you started with. In some more modern ones, like Valley of the Kings, you're actually going to be removing the good cards that you were adding to it as you played in order to get points. A lot of different spins on it, but the core of the game is you start off with the deck, you add more cards to it as you play. Yeah, I'd say a key thing is that everyone starts with an identical deck, but then by the end of the game, you'll have very different decks. And obviously this is not always true, but I'd say that that's a, a common element. That's a generally good marker, yeah. Now, I don't think we touched on this one in our previous two terminology episodes. What is a gateway game? And also, bonus points, why is it a little bit of a controversial term? <laughs> uh, a gateway game is a game that lets new players get into the hobby, getting through the gate, so to speak. And so typically they're going to be light, they're going to be easy to learn, quick to play. These are all family-friendly themes. These are all typical markers. They often have a lot of overlap with existing games. I've often said Settlers of Catan works because at the start of every turn you roll two dice, just like in Monopoly, just like in a bunch of other games. And so it has a lot of overlap. It's, you know, 50% familiar, 50% new. And so people who have never played anything other than Monopoly, you can be like, oh, at the start of my turn I roll two dice. Yeah, that's how board games work. You do something other than move with the dice? What? That's crazy. And again, taking the Catan example there, what else do you do in it? Well, you have resources that you trade with people. That's again a thing that's from Monopoly. Monopoly and Catan are two of very few board games that allow trading. There are certainly dedicated trading games like Bonanza, like Sidereal Confluence, Train and Negotiating the Ladies and Quadrant. But for the vast majority <laughs> of games, you don't have trading as a mechanic. And I think that's another thing that really made it resonate with people who are familiar with Monopoly. Yeah, Monopoly and Catan have more overlap than you'd think, and that's not a coincidence. So why is Gateway Game a little bit of a controversial term in some circles? So I actually don't know why it is. Ooh. So this, this might be just Tom Vassell. Maybe, maybe he's the only person who cares about this. But Gateway Game obviously comes from Gateway Drug. So by saying Gateway Game, we're comparing games to drugs, and drugs are bad. So I know that Tom Vassell in particular has been a bit of an anti-Gateway as a term kick. I can't remember what term he uses to replace it, but he, he's got something that he likes instead of Gateway go Game. I like Gateway Game because, yeah, it comes from drugs. But like you said, it's a very visual metaphor. It's like, it's the gate into which you enter the hobby. And I like that a lot. Common Gateway Games would be Carcassonne, Settlers of Gatan, Exploding Kittens, Cards Against Humanity would be a big one. Everyone has their own opinion. I've never heard people refer to it as a controversial term. Intro Game would be another acceptable one to replace it with. Mar marijuana game i think that's coming out to <laughs> yeah and uh gloomhaven is a uh, cardboard crack right that's the uh <laughs> that's the term for it what aj is a sandbox game a sandbox game is more common in video games but the idea and and this originally came from i think grand theft auto was the first one to popularize the genre and basically the idea is there's a bunch of stuff and you can do kind of whatever you want there's not so much a straightforward path of this is what the game is. It's not level one goes to level two, goes to level three. You fight the Goombas and then you fight the thing after the Goombas and then you fight Bullet Bill and it's, it's completely pre-written for you. Mm -hmm. Not like that. In its most literal term, it is an open world. You don't go level to level, you just wander through the world doing what you want. In a more abstract version of high level look at that genre and that concept, what we're talking about is games that allow you multiple paths to play the game and the paths can often look quite different so maybe you want to fight to win maybe you want to trade to win those are two very different things that you can do both in the same game and it's up to you what path you want to take 
or if you're playing very competitively, it's up to you to to distill and figure out what path is correct in this particular circumstance. And the term obviously comes from a children's sandbox where there is no correct way to play with a sandbox. Like you don't put a kid in and you're like, ah, you're doing it wrong, kid. You can build a castle, you can dig a moat, you can dig a hole, you can bury yourself in the sand. There's no rules. And obviously games have rules. What are some examples of sandbox board games? The biggest one I would say is Western Legends for sure. Now I haven't played Western Legends, but I know it's a favorite oh, of yours. So do you want to do you want to talk about it a little yeah, bit? Yeah, so Western Legends, it's very good to begin with. I, I heard about it for years, then finally sat down and played it and was like, oh, I, lo- I love this. Uh, I won it actually. I won it at a um, board game convention. Nice and really like it so at the start of the game you can do whatever you like you know again within the confines of the rules and so you're given a character and you're given some items and then you can choose whether you want to be a a renegade or a i can't remember what the terms are a good guy or a bad guy basically you can be like okay i'm gonna gonna keep on arresting bad guys and that'll make me more of a good guy or i'm gonna keep on robbing the bank and that may make me a bad guy and the further you along you go the track the more kind of benefits you get in that particular direction or you can and i think my first game i did this you can just stay in the town and play poker for the entire game i played (laughs) a very very simple version of poker but i just sat in the town i played poker for like seven turns in a row and i had a ball or you can go out and become a miner and you can mine gold or you can go out and upgrade all of your stats and upgrade all your equipment or you can trade or you can arrest other players if they've decided to become bad guys and there's just so many different things you can do it's very as you said open world open-ended it's a sandbox game in that like all of these things will get you victory points but unlike a point salad, it's not, ah, uh, you know, everything you do does, gives you victory points so you feel good. It's you can pick any direction and go as hard as you want in that direction and still have a chance of winning. It's a very, very nice little game. Sandbox games are interesting and I think we'll, I think we'll be seeing more of them, especially as video game becomes more of an influence on the board game industry. I'm really interested in trying Western Legends. I'm excited to hear that you liked it because, to be honest, before you had said that, I didn't think much of it from my outside perspective from what I had seen of it. That's exactly where I was. If I hadn't won a copy for free, I don't know if I would have <laughs> prioritized it. I'm very glad I played it, though. Have you played any other sandbox board game that you thought was good? So, weirdly enough, I would call Feast for Odin a sandbox board game. It is a worker placement game with 70 different spaces, and just like Western Legends, multiple paths to victory now normally games are like okay you're trying to get the most money and you have multiple paths of victory in that you can either trade or you can farm or you can steal in feast for odin you can do countless things and it's less sandboxy than west legends in that you do need to cover your board to win if you leave your board uncovered you're not going to win but the sheer variety of stuff that you can do from game to game i think for me edges it into sandbox territory there's also a famous trading sci-fi game which i haven't played i can't remember what it's called it's not city real confluence it's like starts with an x or something like that zidit or, or zarth or zaya zayath yeah i've heard that's very sandboxy as well it is it's also terrible sorry listeners <laughs> my goodness what a bad game i've heard the expansion fixes it but based off of what you just said for your definition of why feast for odin is a sandbox is twilight imperium in your opinion a sandbox no because unlike both western legends and feast for odin twilight imperium very firmly directs you with public objective cards it says hey here are these 10 cards it is impossible to win without aiming for those cards a sandbox game isn't that didactic a sandbox game isn't like hey here's what you do to win a sandbox game is like here's the world pick something to win you know 
And in, in Feast Throne, again, Feast Throne is, is less extreme in that, like, it'll give you some occupation cards at the start of the game and, like, nudge you in a certain direction. But you can quite safely ignore those and just become a farmer. Even if you have no farming cards, you can just be like, I'm going to farm. Or you can become a trader, or you can become a hunter, or you can become a uh, an emigrator. You can do whatever you like. Whereas in Twilight Pyramid, if you ignore those gold cards, you will lose. It's just a fact. Right, I agree. I think what would make me think is a sandbox game. Instead of revealing one at a time and being able to only complete the ones that reveal i think if they were all revealed straight away and there was a, always a variety of like trading ones and combat ones then it would be an open world because then you would have the option of interacting with all these different things as it is some games it's going to feel much more open world than others because of the way that the objectives flow right and obviously building a sandbox game is incredibly hard that's why there's so few of them but if you can get it working ah it's a beautiful experience Okay, what is a solo game? And what, in, in that context, is Automata? A solo game is a game that you will play by yourself without other players at the table. So an Automa is basically an AI, a board game version of an AI. Think, generally speaking, either a deck of cards of different actions or a fancy flowchart in, in some cases, <laughs> where if you do this, then the Automa will do this. And so it's basically just a framework for the game to make what can feel like another player existing at the same table as you. How'd I do? Yeah, I think that's spot on. Uh, the other thing is that solo games have been very common for a long time as part of a multiplayer game. So like, yeah, you can play this with one to five players or one to four players. Feast for Odin famously is most popular as a solo game, I believe, and Mage Knight as well. Very heavy games often have good solo modes because they're just a little puzzle that you can sit there and crunch out on your own time. More and more recently, I would say within the last five years, especially within the last two or three years, the pandemic helped, dedicated solo games have become hugely popular. So that's the game where you buy it and there is no multiplayer mode. It is just a solo game. It is designed for you to play by yourself. And that's that's built up a big audience. Here's every new designer's goal. What is a CCG? You mentioned this earlier, or TCG. CCG is collectible card game. TCG is trading card game. And they both mean the same thing, essentially. Like technically, you know, CCGs uh, don't have the word trading, it, but you're still meant to trade. <laughs> the product that you purchase will not have guaranteed contents. You will be buying a subsection of the total amount of content that exists for that product. From that different combination, you will build decks and play with them. Yeah. Some features of it are that they often have a robust uh, competitive scene. So your local game store will have, your friendly local game store will have tournaments and event nights and like how to play because, uh, well, F FLGS is friendly local game store. It's a very common term with the industry they live and die off ccgs like if magic the gathering didn't exist and nothing else had taken its place we would not have nearly as many stores as we do i think is a is a fact about oh you still you used to work in one you used to work in an flgs were you guys um ccg based no actually when i first was interviewed for it part of the selling point of me was that i had such a strong magic the gathering background i didn't know that when I came to there, part of what he wanted, the owner, was for me to be able to launch that aspect of the business to, to get into Match the Gathering. And then when I showed him just how big of an ask that is, he decided to, to not <laughs> pursue that. But you're right. It can be a huge moneymaker. It's just also a huge commitment from the store. And because yeah. we were doing so well with board games, it just felt like it was kind of off brand for what we were trying yeah. to do. 
another another key feature of a tcg or ccg is that they will have regular releases every two months magic every three months magic the othering releases a new set and this is like in order to get all the cards you need to buy a bunch of boosters and this is how everyone makes money from it and then once you get them you can put them in your new decks and you can win tournaments etc it's a whole ecosystem it's fascinating but it's very 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 painfully common for a new designer to rock up to a game design night and be like yeah so i've designed i play a lot of magic so i've designed a ccg and it's like i mean you know do it for fun sure but if you're doing it with the intent of getting published it's flat out not going to get published it's not gonna happen maybe we should go into why that is the main thing is the distribution model means that you need to have a lot of players because these people need other people to play with and they need to buy a lot of product because they need to constantly be building and adjusting their deck so basically what you need is a lot of really enfranchised players and if you don't see why that is a big ask <laughs> step one get a hundred thousand people who love your product step two profit it's not what's the difficulty i don't understand <laughs> And that's why you'll see most often these have licenses attached to them, because that has a built-in audience. Transformers TCG, you have a lot of people who like Transformers, and so people will buy off of the basis of them liking Transformers, and hopefully you can get them into it from there. And that's why you'll see so many CCGs die, whether they have licenses or not, because you need to build and then maintain a huge audience of really enfranchised players and keep the game consistently so good that they're willing to spend lots and lots of money on it trying to design a new ccg is roughly the equivalent of i've written a james bond film so you know this will be my first film ever made it's like well no if, if someone's launching a ccg which by itself is extremely rare they're not taking outside submissions from new designers they're going to the top people in the field and building a team of you know 10 of the world's best game designers and hey you can get there eventually i know, I know people who work in ccgs it's, it's an actual job that you can have but it's not going to be your first design. You need to prove yourself elsewhere. This also helps explain why Dominion was the huge hit that it was because it had the appeal of a CCG without the commitment of a CCG. <laughs> One other thing to point out is that the distribution model is very maligned among players. People just do not like the feel of you have to buy a bunch of stuff, get a bunch of stuff you don't want to get to the things that you do. And that's why LCG has become a much more common term. That's so the next question I was going to ask. LCG is the trademarked cousin of CCG. LCG is a trademark by Fantasy Flight Games, I believe. And it's a, it's a really interesting uh, model, actually, because it's essentially... So LCG stands for Living Card Game. And they basically looked at, at CCGs, collectible card games, and said, okay, how can we do that, but in a way that doesn't piss people off as much? But also, you don't really think about this, but once you get to manufacturing, you're like, how do they do that? When you buy a Magic the Gathering booster pack, it's got a selection of... 11 random cards or whatever the number is one of them will be the most rare type or the second most rare type the rest will be a mix of the two least rare types and then there'll be one land from a manufacturing point of view how do you how do you do that like how do you have these things randomly generated and you know as a consumer you don't think about it but once you get a manufacturing it's like wow how did they do that lcg nicely sidesteps that whole issue by saying okay so we've made this game system like netrunner is, is the most famous example of an lcg and every four months we're just going to release 30 new cards and these will just integrate straight into the deck i'm making up numbers these are not exact figures these will just integrate in and the meta will change you know the way that people play as we discussed later will, will change based on this and it'll be a living card game that you can invest in it but for a pretty reasonable investment you can get everything so i had for a while every single netrunner card i had all of them because there weren't that many there was the base set which was 50 bucks and then there were a bunch of 20 dollar booster packs and i bought all of those and i had it all so i could build any deck now to be really competitive you needed three copies of everything but i wasn't as interested in that and it it lets you construct decks, it lets you go to tournaments and compete with other people, it lets you do all the stuff that a CCG does without 
a the huge upfront investment from the publisher of okay well this new set needs to have 70 80 200 cards whatever the number is b we need this system where you can randomize booster packs and c players will need to buy 50 packs just to have a chance of getting one card they like how'd i do the only thing i might add is that it's still not that cheap it is way way cheaper than the ccg <laughs> yeah. model but one thing to note is you are paying a lot more than people would normally expect to pay for this product but part of what you're getting with that is a really well-tested, really high-quality game with lots more high-quality art than you would see in a traditional board game, typically. And also, you're buying into a community, too. If, if I buy a copy of Feast for Odin, I might not have anyone who can play it. If I'm buying a LCG that's current and popular, there is a pretty good chance that at one of my local stores, I'll be able to go in and play with a bunch of people and meet people that way. Uh, i got another controversial one for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. So this one is a little bit like abstract in that there's sort of two conflicting definitions going on here. So AJ, what is a 4X game? So the 4X refers to four words that all start with the sound phonetically of X. <laughs> Explore, expand, exploit, exterminate. And that describes what you do in the game. So these games are typically grand strategy games. These are going to be long. They're going to be typically quite complicated. And you are first going to start with a small civilization and you're going to explore. You're going to possibly reveal special events or new terrain features. You're going to expand. You're going to increase the uh, the armies that you have or the, the infrastructure. Resources that you can generate. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You're going to exploit those things. You're going to take resources from the land. These are typically uh, colonization themes. So you're going to take resources from the locals more modernly controversially and you are going to exterminate you're going to fight with other people on the board and the obvious most common 4x is twad Imperium. we talk oh. about it all the time <laughs> not what i thought you were going to say i was going to say the most famous and the one that named it would be civilization <laughs> i mean i think that twad Imperium is more famous than civ in terms of the board game sphere but you're right in terms of the genre as a whole yeah no i think you're right yeah so maybe we should delineate the, the board game and the video game halves. Yeah, so Civilization, did that start as a board game, then become a video game? I can never remember. Oh, yeah. it's got a really complicated history. That might be the case. Okay. <laughs> so Civilization is, if you're not a heavy board gamer and you've heard of 4X games, you've probably heard of Civilization. You start as a Civilization. I could be the Egyptians. I start in a little area. I'm going to explore the land. All the X's that AJ went through. Within the board game world, though, definitely, definitely, definitely Twilight Imperium. Twilight Imperium is so weird because it is a huge, heavy, complex gateway game <laughs> it has brought so many people to the board gaming hobby despite the fact that it requires a six to eight hour minimum commitment it was both of our gateway games yeah yeah it's absolutely <laughs> my gateway game and i think it's partially because it's so audacious someone says to you hey do you want to come over and play a board game you're like oh okay like i guess i could play monopoly with you it's like oh no oh no peter that's not what we're gonna do we are going to set up a house full of people and we're going to be spacefaring people fighting for eight hours and this will be a whole day thing and it'll change your life and you're like well i'm interested yeah you know what let's let's do this so it's yeah fascinating but, you know you're absolutely right in the board game world twilight imperium is the 4x game especially the magnificent fourth edition god that's a good one of the best uh, new editions of anything i've ever seen have you played with the uh, expansion for it i've not i've only played it once actually uh it, it happened as i was moving countries and then a pandemic hit so <laughs> I was, I was sleeping on couches for a lot of the time that um, Twilight Imperium 4 came out. Why do you think I, I referred to it as slightly controversial? The 4X? Yes, 4X as a genre. Why, why, why does this cause debate 
not as much as abstract, but definitely I'd say it's up there. Colonialism. <laughs> oh, not what I was going to say. You are you are surprising me. I've, I've got a little script here that I'm like, and then AJ says his half and you're like, I'm going off script. So firstly, you're absolutely right. Colonization has become much more of a hot button topic. And one of the X's is exploit, which traditionally meant exploit, you know, in the case of civilization, the, the locals, the natives, the, uh, the pre-existing populace. Twilight Imperium sort of avoids that by putting it in space, but I, I can see that that still be controversial. No, I was thinking specifically of Scythe, but more generally of people who are like, oh, I've made a game that has things that technically check off these four X's, therefore it's a 4X game. So Scythe is a hybrid Euro. Hybrid is the term that we defined earlier, so I'm not going to jump into it. But Jamie Stegmaier is like, I want to make a 4X game. But whenever Jamie makes a game, it's of a very specific type. He, ha he has a style. He has a really specific style, which I admire. He's got a style. He's found an audience who likes that style. They're in a very happy relationship. The trouble is he keeps trying to make other games in that style. And so Scythe was originally on the Kickstarter, I believe, billed as a 4X game. Because one of the things that you would do is go around the land and draw cards that would be random events. And he was like, yep, exploration, done. And other X's is exterminate. In Scythe, whenever you fight someone, their troops or their workers or whoever you're fighting just moves back to their homeland. So no one actually gets exterminated. So it was like he treated the four X's as a little shopping list and was like, I've bought everything on the list and came home and they're like, well, I asked for eggs, but these are fish eggs. Like technically by the letter of the law, you brought me eggs, milk, bread, and fruit. I don't know what I'm meant to do with yak's milk, fish eggs, dragon fruit, and a picture of the word bread. So I was in a chat with one of my close friends last night. We were talking about what is a forex. And again, you kind of have to move away from a technical definition and start moving into genre markers. So outside of having the four X's, what would be some other genre markers for a forex game? Being long, for sure. Very heavily strategic. So another one would definitely be, as you said earlier, that epic scale. Uh, you know, just just being long is not enough. It has to feel epic. You need to, you want to have that going from a very small amount of things you can do to navigating half the board and having wars on multiple fronts. You really want to have that whole experience and that feeling of aggression. So St Jamie Stegmaier's games tend to be very low aggression, very you know peaceful. And Scythe is probably his most aggressive game. It has some actual combat, but even then, it's like you move in, someone wins, the other person goes home, and you keep playing. A proper forex in terms of genre markers is about crushing your opponents. It's about you know <laughs> making sure that they know that they have lost. And so that I think is one of the things that really disappointed Scythe. Like it's a very good Euro. It was my favorite game for a long time. But it is not a 4X, and he, he in fact stopped calling it that. Let's do a few more. Let's do some very technical ones. What is Spiel, or Spiel de Jahr? Spiel, I think that's the correct pronunciation, just means game, doesn't it? Yes, it is the German word for play, specifically, but also used to mean oh, game. play, okay. So the the Spiel, in terms of what we're talking about, is, uh, is the most prestigious award that a board game can get. Uh, technically, the Spiel des Jahres, which is uh, Game of the Year, I thought, but I guess technically Play of the Year. I, I think that game is. Uh, I think so. You know how you can uh, use an. So you know how a knife is a noun, but also you can knife someone. Right. I think that's how Spiel works. I, I don't know for sure. Uh, sorry, uh, I didn't do my research ahead of time. Please send me angry emails. <laughs> so there's a few different awards. There's the Kinder Spiel, which is for kids. There's the Spiel, which is the like normal weight one in their eyes family game almost not kids game but like accessible family gateway game well so the thing is all three of them are pretty light <laughs> but the thing is, is the these aren't awards for hardcore gamers these are like when families go to the store they're looking at the shelf 
they'll say, oh, that one has the spiel. That one I, I can buy. Yeah. So even though some of them are more gamer focused, they're all on the lighter end of the spectrum. Yeah, it's, it's the gamer equivalent of the Oscars, essentially, or the Emmys. Uh, so if, if a board gamer said to you, I'm going to Essen, what would that actually mean beyond I'm going to the physical town that is called Essen? There is a huge convention in Essen for board games. It is the biggest place in the year for board game releases, I think, of, of the year. It's so big in Germany because their culture is much more board game centric that it's like the event of, of like the country of the year, from my understanding. I've never been. <laughs> it's, it's, but... it's not quite that extreme, but... Uh... No, no, it's it's a big deal. It's not like the equivalent of uh, the Olympics or something. Yeah, yeah, it, it would pale in comparison. Uh, yes, and, and it obviously is in the town of Essen. Uh, the, the festival is not called Essen, but every board game will call it Essen. The festival is called Spiel. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, okay, so if I said to you, "Hey, I've got a dead card in my hand, or I've got a dead hand, or I just took a dead turn," what does that mean? That means whatever you have is functionally ineffective. So a dead card could be, in magic, destroy an artifact. Well, my opponent doesn't have any artifacts, so it is a dead card in my hand. I can't actually use it for, for something. Now, you may technically have use for it. Maybe you can discard any card for a small effect because of another card, but in general, it means it's something that's useless. And so a dead turn would just mean you have nothing productive to do on your turn. Okay, coming to the end of my list here. Here's, here's an interesting one, because I've heard two very different definitions, and I think they're both valid. AJ, what is, outside of the company, what is a Grail game? Grail Games being a company that took this term and then named their company after it. I actually think I had a misunderstanding with this term the first time we spoke about this, back uh, at the last time we saw each other in person. <laughs> and I, I think there's actually two definitions for it. I think definition one is as a designer, and definition number two is as a gamer. Yeah, this, is, this is what I've also learned recently. <laughs> I only knew the designer term, <laughs> and so I was like, why are people using this term so wrong? They're all so <laughs> dumb. They're not smart enough to get my podcast. Either way, it refers to something that's very difficult to achieve or impossible to achieve. So as a gamer, it might be a game that is so hard to get. It's like the holy grail, if you could only have it. So this could be like the collector's edition of War of the Ring, where they made like a thousand copies and each one cost a thousand USD. Good luck ever on earth finding a copy, you know? You, you can for like seven Gs. <laughs> Glory of Rome is basically a grail game at this point. Oh, it's not that bad. It's only a couple hundred bucks for a <laughs> deck of cards. <laughs> I've also heard grail game as if you could only play one game for the rest of your life. Some people use it that way as well. The designer term grail game refers to a game that's going to be so hard to design that it, it may as well be unachievable or maybe you could but it's like if only i could design this idea then it would be like the the magnum opus of my career right yeah as it dice tower con a few years back before before the bat <laughs> i was at dice tower con a few years back and we had dinner with eric lang and a bunch of other designers and we basically ran around the table and we we're all like here is my grail game here's the game that if i could design this like i don't know i don't think i can't i don't think it's possible but if i could design this oh oh the time i would have what's yours so if you've played some of my recent designs you'll see me just constantly trying to get towards this but my grail game is a game where you learn all the rules and it's kind of sandboxy i guess you learn all the rules and then at the start of every game, you flip out three cards, and those three cards result in a radically different experience every time you play. So those three cards just have some very simple tweak to the rule that just transforms the entire game. And even though you know all the rules, 
now that you're playing with that card, you have to think about the game differently to the point of rebuilding all your strategies and you can't rely on any of the techniques that you've typically used to win. That's my grail game. That's what I'm always trying to get closer and closer to. What about you? I don't think I have one. Either I'm just too confident or not ambitious enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think the closest one is a, is a, the current design I'm working on, the, the horror game. And I really want to get as close as I can to making someone scared in a board game. The thing about my Grail game is that, like, the example I always think of is you're used to sheep. You know how sheep work, you know how to get them, you know how to breed them and all that. But this card makes sheep the enemy. So now you have to be, like, fighting these sheep instead of breeding them. Or, like, it doesn't, it doesn't quite make sense, but that, that's the idea. Okay, so we are going to end these definitions exactly where we began with two more terms from Magic the Gathering. AJ, what is a red deck or a red card? Interesting that you would use this term as one that we need to define. A red card or a red deck is a really aggressive deck or a very aggressive card. It's going to sacrifice long-term benefits for short-term gain. The candle that burns twice as hot burns half as long, right? So the idea is if I can end the game really quickly before you get your engine up and running, I'll just win. If I play a bunch of small, cheap, weak cards, then I'll be able to overwhelm you before you can use your much better cards. Because Magic the Gathering is such an expansive, deep system and allows for so much creativity in your deck design and the way that you play it, and because it's so popular, it brings a lot of people to the board game design hobby. So a lot of board game designers, I would say probably the majority of board game designers are ex-Magic the Gathering players. And so you'll find a lot of these terms like Tudor, Mill, Red Deck. Uh, I've, I've even made play tests where someone's like, oh, cool, okay, so that, that player power is like the red one or something like that. So I've, I've actually seen this a bit. What were you expecting me to say? Well, uh, I assume that the next one's going to be tap, right? <laughs> no, we did, we did tap in the previous episode, didn't we? Oh, okay, okay, good for us. So just for the red example, the red is a color in Magic, and Magic has a bunch of different colors. Each color has its own strengths and weaknesses red most often the strengths align with with aggressive strategies yeah. so for me i would have been probably defining aggro but and like if i was in a play test i would say this is the aggro strategy this is the aggro deck yeah. i wouldn't have necessarily said red that was the main reason i was surprised if you do hear people say red though that is what it means okay here is the worst and most confusing term in all of board game design that if you don't understand it you will get very lost and it comes directly from magic the Gathering. aj <laughs> What defines a multiplayer game? <laughs> this is a good one. This is a really good one. A multiplayer game is three or more players. <laughs> Isn't it revolting? Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you put this one down. <laughs> why is three or more players a multiplayer game? And why is two player not multiplayer? So arguably this isn't a magic term. Uh, or it doesn't come originally from magic. But... The reason why you're saying it comes from Magic is because in Magic, traditionally you'd play 1v1, so then if you add more players in, it becomes a multiplayer environment. But I think that actually has deeper roots. It, it, it's still from Richard Garfield, <laughs> but I think that the roots of multiplayer come a little bit more differently than that. I think it comes more from the idea of an ortho game, as defined by Richard Garfield as a 1v1 competitive test of skill. And anytime you add in an, an extra element, then it becomes more about the multiplayer dynamics the than it does about the strategy. Yeah, the politics, yeah. So I have been in so many conversations where you start teaching a game and someone's like, oh, okay, so, so it's a multiplayer game. And someone else is like, yes, why would we 
be it a, <laughs> obviously it's a multiplayer game. They're like, no, no, no. I mean, like a multiplayer. And yeah, it's a garbage term for garbage people. What we currently have to work with, because unfortunately we live in a society where other people use terms <laughs> and don't agree to ours. It's solo for one. It's two player for two. And anything more is multiplayer. <laughs> uh, having said that, you don't have to use it, but uh, you, you can. So, as you know, we always end our Fun Problems podcast with a fun question. And because I have taken over the role of host for this one episode, I have prepared a fun question. So, AJ, my fun question for you is, what uncommon app on your phone do you use the most? So this is not an app that everyone has, like Facebook or Messenger or email or whatever. What is the kind of unique to you most used app? I'm gonna have to open my phone up and take a look. You scumbag. How how dare you? Honestly, I don't use my phone that much. I know that's like a, I know that's like a blasphemy thing for uh, for a millennial. For a board game designer. By far, (laughs) um, like, the, honestly, the most exotic thing that I use frequently is my notes app, but that's not remotely exotic. I, I don't use my phone enough to, to be able to answer that question. Like I use texting, Facebook, YouTube, podcasts, and my notes app. And that is like, and my, my email. And that's 99% of what I use it for. Really? Well, this is, this is a good get to know you question because I would not have guessed that. It helps that I'm a technophiliac. So I have like thousands of apps that I've used over my lifetime. Nothing else you use? Uh, not really. No, like, again, I, I use Audible. <laughs> I use, uh, I, I don't even use Workflowy as much as I would like to, but that would be, like, the most exotic of them. Wow. Workflowy, obviously, being the world's best uh, list software, I guess you'd call it, list app. Peter, what's your most used uncommon app? So, mine is one that maybe a few people have heard of, but I'd guess not. Uh, it's called Word Cookies. <laughs> uh, it is huh. a app in which there's various apps of the same type this just happens to be the one i use so it's a little circle of letters so i'll open it up and i'll tell you what the letters are that i have at the moment so it's a little circle of letters right now it's g-e-e-y-r-e-r-n and you just use your finger to connect those letters to spell words so from those letters for example you can spell energy or you can spell green or you can spell rye like rye bread or you can spell r-e-y which might be a word and i would genuinely suffer if this app got deleted because i discovered about six or seven years ago that this app puts me to sleep like nothing else ever since i started using this app i have not had problems with sleep for like seven years so i open this up and i start just making words on it and you know you get to the other level you do the next level you make the words and one of two things happens either i hit hit that point where i can just put the phone down and immediately go to sleep or after maybe like 10, 15, 20 minutes, I'm like, oh, I am not ready for sleep right now. It's the exact right level of stimulation to like stop my brain from wandering into, you know, those things that your brain wanders into to, to keep you awake. But it's not stimulating enough to keep me awake. It's it's the exact right level. So yes, I'm up to level 7,000 or something like that because I've played it every night for seven years. And if this app got deleted or something like that, ah. Oh. Oh, the, the, my life would be worse for it. I have to find another identical one. But this one, because I've been using it for so long, I know it so well. Every time they change the UI even slightly, it's jarring to me because this is my go-to-sleep app. I love it. Workflow is cured any insomnia I've ever had. Very cool. I, I realized as you are explaining it, my parents actually play that one. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> we, should, we should hang out and discuss it. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. It's funny because it has a little currency. 
and the currency is like, are you stuck? Spend a thing. But for me, getting stuck is what helps me get to sleep. So I've never spent it. So I have tens or hundreds of thousands of coins in this app that I've just <laughs> built up over seven years. And it's like, hey, you can spend five bucks to get 70 coins. And I'm like, I would, I would never have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so our next episode is going to be on on-ramping, which as we've defined earlier, is getting new players into your game as easily as possible. I'm really excited about this episode for two reasons. One is that on-ramping is one of my absolute favorite things in game design. And secondly, it's not a terminology episode. Can you even remember, AJ? Can you even remember the times <laughs> before we did terminology episodes? They've been fun, but I'm, I'm happy to move on. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just going to say, I, I really enjoy these episodes, but I am also very happy to move on. If anyone has any terminology that we didn't cover and that has ever confused you, uh, please write in. And at some point, maybe in like a few months or a year or something, we'll do another terminology episode with all user-submitted terminology. Yeah, or if we just get a couple, then maybe we'll just pop one or two and follow up and keep it a little easier on ourselves. But yeah, it's also one of my favorite topics. And so I'm particularly excited to see where we disagree. And I have a note here that you might disagree with so i'm particularly excited for this teaser <laughs> so one of the tips that i was going to give is that for an intro scenario thinking like a campaign game type of a situation you're going to want to not only make your scenario simpler in terms of rules overhead you're also going to want to make it shorter because new players as they are trying to learn the game are going to play way way slower than people who are experienced particularly for their first game and so if your first one is intentionally shorter, it's actually going to take the same amount of time that you want it to as it would with an experienced group. How do you feel about that tip? As you predicted, I'm going to completely disagree. I think it should be 70 times longer. Exactly <laughs> 70 times. Any less than that is not technically an intro scenario. No, that makes total sense to me. I've not designed a campaign game, really. What? That time I killed you. We just talked about it. Yeah, the thing is, you're right, but A, I didn't design that as a, as a, yeah, A, it doesn't use scenarios. B, I didn't design it as a campaign game. I just designed too much and had to take stuff in and scenarios or a campaign was the only way to, to get it all back in there. And C, the design that I, I submitted is not exactly what's being published. I went through a really good dev process. And so they've taken out what I had as the intro scenario because it just wasn't very good. So the one time... I designed an intro scenario. It was very bad and the publisher immediately took it out. <laughs> but no, I think that makes total sense. I've actually played a lot of prototypes. This will shock you. And as a result, I've probably played 30, 40, 50 times as many campaign game scenarios as I have actual campaign games because I very rarely play through a campaign game, but I play through a lot of prototypes playing the intro scenario. And I would say if you're making a campaign game, cut every rule that you can for that intro scenario. Now with that time you killed me, I went too far with that and cut out the fun. And so that's why they were like, this is not a good intro <laughs> scenario, but I've definitely played a lot where it's like, okay, cool. Here's the basics of the game. Here's seven rules. Here's eight rules exceptions. Here's five characters. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like for the sake of the campaign, just give us all identical characters and get rid of all these things that cause rules exceptions and just teach us the core loop. Make sure that there's fun in it. And that's what I maybe didn't do with that time you killed me, but just teach us the core loop. So that has been Terminology 3, the terminologying, and we hope you've enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun stepping into the role of host for that one episode. Good times. I actually host a new podcast, which I'll mention here, which is the Cracking the Cryptic podcast, where I am not the one being interviewed. I am the interviewer. So if you enjoyed my style in this episode, head over to Cracking the Cryptic podcast on YouTube is what you want to search for, and you'll find me interviewing two Sudoku creators. AJ, anything else we want to talk about before we say goodbye to everyone? 
Nope, that covers it for me. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And we'll talk to you next time. <laughs> we don't normally have an outro, <laughs> but we did one. Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye. I hope we keep all of this. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Fun Problems Pod or reach us via email at funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.